0: You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Sister Tracy Haran is a sister of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana, and Associate Director of Education and Advocacy for the Kino Border Initiative in Sonora, and Arizona, where she has lived and worked since 2019. Sister Tracy has ministered with Latinx migrant communities in a variety of contexts for over a decade. She previously worked as a teacher and then as a community organizer and has grappled with the gifts and challenges of intentional community living in a variety of contexts, including with biological family, Catholic worker companions, and vowed Catholic sisters from various backgrounds. This fall, Sister Tracy will celebrate seven years as a religious sister. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Sister Tracy and I talk about how she changed from a teenager who was arguing for the existence of a border wall to an activist who wants to tear the border wall down every day. We also talk about what's really happening at the United States-Mexico border, what the process and struggles are like for migrants and those who assist them, why we need to end Title 42, and how we must be persistent in our advocacy for immigration reform. Plus, we get into community, how it is made up of dedicated people being present to a common mission, no matter how messy the struggle may be. Enjoy. Hi, Sister Tracy. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business.
1: Good morning, Julia. It's so good to be here. Great to be with you. Thanks
0: for coming on the show. I know you're very busy at Kino Border Initiative there in Nogales, and you have a lot on your plate every day as you're working to educate and advocate and companion folks and. Um, I'm just excited to to hear your wisdom. Uh but before we get into that and and into the reality of what it's what's really going on on the on the border cuz th- those people like me who are in the north like all the way up in Chicago and stuff it's sometimes hard for us to really imagine. So before before we get into that I'd like to hear how did you realize you were called to minister at the border as Uh, sister of Providence?
1: That's a great question. I'll try to give the medium range version of that because we could have a whole show talking just about that experience. But, you know, I, it's interesting when I was in high school, I had an experience in my Spanish class when the teacher would use debate to help us practice our Spanish. And the debate at that time, which was more than 15 years ago, was whether we should build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border And I was very vocal because from what I heard from my friends and from the news and, you know, other people in my life, it was really clear, like people who are crossing into the U.S. are breaking the law. And so, you know, we should build a wall so that people don't break the law and and they're criminals, right? And so I was very vocal about that point of view. It's kind of hard to believe now. But yeah, that's, that's where I was at that time in my life. And so my teacher was really smart and she said, well, it's clear that you understand that side of the debate. So what I'm going to ask you to do is research the other side and argue that side. And I was furious because (laughs) I knew my opinion and I was right. And how dare you ask me to research this view that's not correct. But I was also, you know, a student who was kind of high functioning and like, I'm going to get an A on this project. So I decided to research anyway. And what I found was that I had no idea. I had no idea why people were crossing the border. I had never even considered the reasons, the push factors, the individual lives of people that were facing that decision. And so that was the first time that I really started to kind of crack open this awareness in myself. And, you know, years later, here I am, I'm, you know, I'm talking to you from Nogales, Sonora, and I can see the border wall from outside. If I go out on the street, it's about a block from our house. And there's nothing that I wouldn't give to just tear that wall down. So that was kind of where it started. And then fast forwarding a bit, when I joined the Sisters of Providence, my first ministry after I left the mother house was as a community organizer, working mostly with migrant communities on things like deportation defense, and really trying to separate the local police from ICE so that people weren't getting detained for things like a minor traffic infraction. And after a few years, I I felt honestly kind of burned out and just the need for a change. And so I started looking and I wasn't really planning to go far from home.
0: Home for you uh, is Indiana?
1: Yeah. So I'm from Indianapolis. Our mother house is in Western Indiana, St. Mary of the Woods. Yeah, so I kind of imagined that I would stay nearby so I could live with other sisters in Providence and, you know, find a way to kind of continue similar work maybe, but kind of in a different direction. So I wasn't looking to move far away, but I actually around that time, a good friend of mine, uh, sister Janet Gilday, who's a, a sister of charity, I had lived with her when I graduated college and I was first really discerning. Just an inspiring woman and full of joy and lots of energy. She died of cancer that spring that I was discerning this ministry changed. And it was hard because I couldn't make it to El Paso for that funeral. And so what I did to sort of grieve was I went online and I just looked, I Googled her name and like sisters on the border and immigration to just find like articles that she had written. She wrote for uh, various publications and, and videos of her. It was like my process. But somewhere as I was Googling her name and those descriptive words, I came upon the Kino Border Initiative, and I really just stumbled upon it. And I happened to notice that they had a job opening for an education coordinator. Uh, My background's in education, and I feel like I did a lot of educating as an organizer as well. And so I kind of looked at it, and I thought, well, my sisters are never going to go for this. Like, (laughs) I would have to move across the country and you know, I'm not really looking to go so far away. Um, but I it just caught my attention. And so I decided, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna apply and see, I'll put it on my list of things that I present in my discernment to our leadership team or to my mentor. Um, it probably won't happen, but I'll just add it to the list. And so I did add it to the list. And it turned out in my conversations, I learned that our leadership team was also discerning how to respond to the situation at the border? Um, so that was in 2019, with all of the family separation that was happening and the detention of children. And and so when I brought that to them, they they felt like it was sort of a response to their discernment as well. Hmm. And um, and it turned out that there is a group of sisters, uh, missionaries of the Eucharist, from a Mexican community, who also work at the Kino Border Initiative. So when I was looking on the website, I thought. I wonder if they would ever let me live with them. <laughs> um, and I have my own stereotypes about religious life and Catholicism in, in Mexico and Central and South America. So I thought, I don't know if this will be a good fit. But I reached out to them and we had a conversation and uh, there was just so much alignment with our focus for mission. And and it was, I was I started to get excited about it. So then it turned out there was another funeral for Janet back in the Midwest in Cincinnati where their mother house is. And I was able to go to that funeral and I just felt as I was looking, so they had an image of Janet near the altar and I was looking at her face and her smile and I felt her kind of beckoning me to come to the border.
0: Hmm. And
1: just a couple hours later, I received a phone call from Joanna Williams, who is now our executive director, offering <laughs> me the position. And so it really felt very spirit led. Oh, so here I am.
0: Wow. And what would you say to your high school self at this point?
1: You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure there's much that I could say. I think, you know, we're ready to hear things when we're ready. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think
1: at that time in my life, there was, you know, there was a lot of like exerting my own ego and feeling like I was the center of the universe as all (laughs) high schoolers do. So I don't know there's much that I could say except to look look on myself with compassion you know maybe say that you know just just try to to stay open you know I even think to say you don't know everything that's not really helpful to a high schooler (laughs) but I think I imagine myself more just looking on myself with with love and compassion and Mm -hmm. you know there's a, a wise sister from our congregation that says you know what you need to know when you need to know it so there's part of me that thinks there's not much that I could say that it's just really more of a process that i had to, to live through and lots of generous people willing to share their stories with me and and accompany along the way
0: mm-hmm. so the people you've met through your ministries uh, as community organizer and now as educator on the border they've been your teachers
1: definitely and i think it, it even goes back to so when i graduated college i taught middle school for a couple of years in el paso that was the time when I lived with Sister Janet and a group of Sisters of Charity and other women who were discerning. And at our school, we had, in my classes, I had about a third of my students lived in Juarez, Mexico and crossed the border every day to come to school. And so we, I remember within my first few months, one of my students just disappeared and we didn't know what happened. There was no communication from her family. And then You know, a week later, maybe we we learned that there had been a bomb in front of her house, that her family was being targeted by organized crime. And so, you know, those moments I had to face this empty chair in my classroom every day and and realize that this violence was happening and, and this family that should be able to seek protection didn't have access to that. So, you know, those experiences really just called me to ask more questions and go deeper and try to understand you know what is happening, and why? Why is it this person who lives so close to the U.S. Uh, can't can't access that safety in El Paso, which is one of the safest cities in the country? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what is happening? Can you just lay the landscape for us? Let's. What is the reality
1: of life on the border now? What's the truth? I would say the reality is there is just so much uncertainty. And unjust decisions that are being made about the options that migrants have right now. So, Nogales is one of four cities that are part of this Title 42 exemption process. So, for those who don't know, Title 42 is a, a federal authority that first the Trump administration used as a, a pretext. So, it's designed to give you know, the president, the special authority in cases like a pandemic for public safety, which, you know, would make sense. The problem is it's been used to, quote unquote, close the border for the past year, which essentially has meant denying asylum seekers access to their rights. So me as a U.S. citizen, I can cross back and forth every day if I want to. I can go on hikes in the U.S. I can even bring my dog with me. My dog is Mexican. But because I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm not asked to provide a COVID test or a vaccination, proof of vaccination. At the same time, people who are fleeing persecution can approach a port of entry and say, you know, I'm here seeking asylum. And they're told, well, you have to go to the Kino Border Initiative and go through this other process. And so it's very frustrating for us because it's been since March of last year. That this has been happening and the narrative is that it's about essential travel while well, to me an asylum seeker's right to asylum is much more essential than my right to go take a hike in the mountains <laughs> so it's really kind of laughable but the reality is it's a it's really serious for a lot of people who are here waiting and so they show up to us we put them on a list to get an appointment to get a screening to see if they would would be able to enter this process for people who are fit into a category of vulnerability. And so, you know, there's been a lot of advocacy and the beautiful thing has been uh, the work that migrants have done and other advocates have done to really push on Title 42 and just expose how ridiculous it is to say that this is about COVID when For most of this time, the U.S. has had many more cases of COVID than Mexico has. So right now in Nogales, about 40 people are able to be processed per day to access asylum. And so they come to us, then we connect them with our legal partners to do this intake. They send the information to an organization that's in communication with the U.S., and then they get a response. So the whole process right now for people who are arriving we're telling them that the next available appointment is the beginning of November. So that's four months from now. And if you're someone who, you know, I talked to a man who was kidnapped, he had tried to cross the border and the people who said they would guide him into the desert actually kidnapped him and and tried to extort him and make him call his family members and ask for money. He then escaped later, but those people are in Mexico. And so he's still in Mexico. And to tell him you have to wait four months to access this process, where you may or may not be able to to seek asylum and cross into the U.S., most likely you'll get detained because you're a single adult traveling by yourself. It's really, really hard. So these conversations we're having with migrants every day, um, having to tell them, you're here fleeing violence, and you're just going to have to figure out what to do for the next four months and whether you think your family can survive during that time, which you can imagine if if you're in that situation and all you want is for your family to be safe. We have really seen the control of organized crime and the level of, of threats and violence here in Nogales has really increased over the past year, year and a half, to the point where we have seen Kidnappings just right outside of, attempted kidnappings right outside of our building. We've seen lots of people who who come to us because they are receiving threats in Nogales. And so people are just stuck. You know, that's not like, it's just completely flying in the face of the commitments we've made as a country based on both U.S. and international law to say these people have a right to to seek protection. And so I think one thing that's really hard about it is that I remember, you know, in the organizing we've done with Mer, who have really been fighting over the past year to restore asylum protections, there are people who were returned to Mexico under MPP um, or the Remain in Mexico policy last year, you know, started in 2019 and continued in 2020. So a lot of those people have been processed earlier this year, um, which was really exciting for us. But at the same time, we're seeing the same thing now. It's just in a different form. So people who try to cross through the desert to seek asylum because it's the only way they can access those rights are being sent back to Mexico. You know, some of them do if they if they have the luck of encountering a Border Patrol agent who hears their fear claim and is willing to channel them to an interview and, and the correct authorities You know, within the U.S. government that's great, but we're still seeing lots of people who are not getting that access. So they're getting sent back to Mexico. So even though I think what's been hard for us is that, you know, last year, I remember when we, we learned that Biden officially won and I just felt this wave of relief because I knew that a lot of the Trump era policies, you know, just wouldn't continue. At least I had the faith that they would not. And yet here we are you know, seven months into the Biden presidency, and we still have no clear path for how asylum restoration is going to happen. We've been told that this process right now, where 40 people are crossing per day, might end or might change by July 31st. So that's, you know, like a week from now, and we still have no clue what the new process will be. So when migrants are asking us what to expect, you know, we feel that frustration with them and and just that anger that, you know, these people have a right to know what their life is going to be in these next months. They have a right to have the information they need to make these decisions. And most of all, they have a right to access protection. And it's just simply not being upheld right now.
0: Mm. Help me understand what we need to advocate for regarding Title 42 and how we can do that.
1: Yeah. So actually just yesterday, we learned that Title 42... There was some hope that it would be ended this month, at least for families with children. As of yesterday, it's officially been extended through the end of August. So for me, ending Title II is a very low bar ask. Like at at a minimum, we're saying give people access to due process. Don't return people to danger. It feels like a ridiculous ask to me because, you know, this shouldn't be happening. And it was something that was started under the Trump era that it seemed... It seemed clear to most of us that Biden would would not continue this policy. So the very low bar ask is asking the Biden administration to end using Title 42 to exclude migrants from accessing their right to asylum. Beyond that, honestly, what, what we're starting to envision is, you know, we need to push for a full restoration of access to asylum at our ports of entry. This is something that is really recent. If you were to go back to, I know a migrant who's living in Phoenix now who crossed early 2018, he approached the port of entry, you know, waited in line and then said, you know, I'm here to seek protection. And he was processed right away. That was three years ago. So this is this is a new phenomenon to create all of these obstacles and hoops for people to jump through just so that they can access this, this right that our laws recognize they have. So what we need to really push for is we need to return to, to a system where people can approach ports of entry and can be processed right away to access that right to asylum. And then, you know, of course, once they're in the U.S., they have to go through their entire court proceedings and continue to fight their case. But at the very least, you know, we need to return to that to that moment when people, you know, for years, for decades, people were able to approach ports of entry um, to seek asylum. And so, you know, it's, it's really ridiculous that, that we have built up so much infrastructure to get in their way of doing just that, that simple act.
0: I just want to encourage all of our listeners. Yeah. Let's, let's advocate for the end of title 42 and comprehensive and compassionate immigration reform. And let's just be like the widow, right. In the gospels who just keeps asking and asking God over and over and over. And when, it, when when the systemic injustice is so large, it can feel so big and heavy. Even to me, who's so far away from it here in Chicago, I'm overwhelmed when I think about the picture of what's needed to, to create a system that's actually just and compassionate. I was just going to say, I think what I'm hearing from you is is the importance of constantly bugging our elected officials about this. We can't just like sign one petition once a month, (laughs) right? And then say, oh, I did my part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think recently I've seen some really good things that people have shared about, you know, similarly for the work with Black Lives Matter, those of us who are just awakening to racial injustices in our country. It's like, well, first of all, it's like, you know, get involved, but recognize you know from my place of white privilege, I'm so used to being able to fix things overnight. Um, mm. you know I should be able to call a manager or something and my privilege should work and should get me what I want. Well, that's not how this works for people who have over years and decades and and centuries been placed at the bottom of the hierarchy of human value. That's just not how the system works for for people. And so, yes, that persistence and perseverance is is so crucial. And the other thing that I really want to do is, is continue and encourage people to lift up, not to accept the minimum. You know, I think sometimes in these political sort of world of compromise and, hmm. and deal making, it's, it's really easy to get into this trap of, well, let's just ask for what we think we can get. The reality is it's our job as people of faith to actually lift up what we want. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we can, yes, we are asking for an end to Title 42, but also we want to ask for a full restoration of asylum, because that is absolutely possible and doable. And it is what we believe people deserve. So I'll just put in a quick plug. One of the things that's been really inspiring to me, and it's been, a privilege to to accompany migrants, and we have the Save Asylum Coalition that is people on both sides, U.S. and Mexico, here, mostly in in Arizona and Sonora, migrants and people of faith and civil society groups. And it started because migrants last year during the pandemic said, like, the border's been closed and no one's even talking about this. Like they have forgotten us, and if we don't live lift our voices, then who will? And so they really pushed us, you know, we were kind of hesitant and had things on hold because of COVID, but they said, listen, this is not the time for us to to stop, this is actually the time that we need to lift our voices the most. And so it continues to inspire me. So now, because of this window that we have where some people have gotten processed through the ending of MPP and through this um, consortium process, uh, there are some migrants who are in the US that we've stayed in touch with. And the most compelling thing to me is that they continue to be involved. There's a number of people who say, I want to still be part of this movement. I wanna still work for justice from the other side. And that really are concerned still about migrants that are arriving. Easily they could say, oh great, like I'm here, I'm good. I'm gonna focus on my own asylum case and what I need to do. But they know, they know what it was like to be here. And they know that people are still living that now.
0: Yeah, thank you. It seems like a really important movement to, to pay attention to and support. And, and I know that you've written about the Save Asylum uh, movement for Messy, Jesus business on the blog. So we'll have to link to that in the show notes for the listeners so they can hear your perspective from the ground and, and some of the voices yeah. that, that you encounter. I feel like you're, you're helping me to feel encouraged and, and to not be overwhelmed, even though mm-hmm. I, I, before we even began recording, you, uh, said that yeah things are really hard and it's really hectic and chaotic and you know things are really busy you said that yesterday you fed what 700 people
1: yeah 770 something people that came to our center and I think that was a new record for us so you know before before the last couple of months a day where we had lots of people would be like maybe 300 felt like overwhelming and so now we're you know we've been experiencing more than double that number so it's a lot
0: Yeah. So people are desperate for their basic needs, their basic rights, shelter, food, clothing, safety. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, and the other thing is, you know, our government has really set things up for this to happen because right now there's only four places. If you want to seek asylum across the entire border, there's only four places you can go. So of course, you know, whereas before you could approach any port of entry, now you know, all of those folks are being funneled into four locations. So of course, there's going to be lots more people in, in fewer locations rather than, you know, people being spread out. Yeah. So it's, it's really been, it's by design um, to create that kind of situation. Oh,
0: it's horrific. It's horrific. In all your encounters and this life of advocacy and compassion and companioning folks that you're living I'm curious what you're learning about what
1: community is. Yeah, I think, you know, there's like layers of community here. I have the sisters I live with, and that's been just a crucial support Uh, when we come home and pray together in the evening, and each person can share, just kind of debrief the encounters we've had, which a lot of times are really hard. And then there's this broader layer of The Save Asylum work, which I've been really grateful, particularly to kind of organize these these migrant spaces, because especially during the pandemic, people have been so isolated. You know, we as the staff team had felt that um, migrants have expressed it. So I remember when we first started organizing, you know, inviting migrants to come together and be part of this binational Save Asylum work. Just the feeling, just the relief that it was to be in a room together and talk about what was happening and it felt so important for people to know that they weren't alone and a lot of times I would just sit back and you know they would just talk amongst themselves and and share you know someone would share you know I dealt with this this extortion or, or these threats I'm really scared for my kids and then someone else would say me too you know I've I feel that and so that's that's been so important I remember it to the point that there was one particular family that they had experienced extortion on one particular day. Uh, the mom of the family was, she was texting me and, and that morning she said, you know, I'm not going to come for, for the food this morning because I'm just, I'm still feeling really scared. But she made the decision to come to our organizing meeting that afternoon. And I remember being kind of surprised, but then I also remember thinking, well, of course, like she doesn't want to be alone today. You know, she wants that It's just that desire for community and for being with others. I think what we're facing can be so scary and so daunting. And so I personally feel that too, such a relief, you know, when I'm thinking about what is it that we can do that's really strategic and impactful. For me, it's so important to just like pick up the phone and call someone on our our migrant organizing team like, hey, this is what I'm thinking what do you think about this? So those little moments of just checking in with each other are important. And and then creating those spaces where we could be together when most folks who are here waiting in, in Nogales spend most of the day alone or with their family or with three or four families in a room that they're renting and simply don't go out, whether it's because of the virus or because of dangers that they're afraid of.
0: Am I hearing you say that community is really just a strong support system and like a place of or a group of refuge or of of safety and security where we can truly lean on one another and and care for one another and also sort of check out our ideas and our and turn to one another for inspiration and encouragement is that what community is
1: I think that's right I think it's people coming together with with a common mission deciding to be present whether they're at their best or at their worst and and showing up every day and being there for one another. I don't know. I think it's I think it's actually just it can be really simple the choice to show up and to to hold space together in whatever way we come. Yeah. Commitment.
0: Yeah. Real commitment then mm-hmm. to one another and to the mission and to the space and to into and arriving to being present. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think sometimes it looks really, it's like the daily just grind of doing the thing (laughs) that is like, you know, if I get in an argument with my housemate, then like the next day, my faithfulness to community is like looking that person in the eye and greeting them by their name, even though I'm not feeling it, you know, it's just, um, yeah. And I think sometimes that's how, you know, how this work can feel that like, you know what, it's been what 15 months that the border's been closed and yet we're choosing to show up every Thursday and have this national meeting and Mm. and be together and and thinking and working for how things can be different so that's really sometimes that's really hard and sometimes it feels impossible and then other times you know we inspire each other and and motivate each other to keep going yeah yeah
0: I'm thinking too of like how what you're talking about is is really sort of like, you know, the daily grind, the commitment, like in the midst of the struggle is, is so gospel, isn't it? I mean, and, and just really so, mm-hmm. so much scripture in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, both have all these messages of like, yeah, if blessed are the persecuted, <laughs> right? Like, it's mm-hmm. going to be tough. If you're going to commit to this mission of love, no matter how costly it is, it's going to mm-hmm. take something from you. And it's going to take a lot of growth and development and transformation and hard work and uncomfortable <laughs> experiences. And, yeah. and even yeah. like going into places that like are literally unsafe, like that is yeah. the gospel and so when jesus says take up your cross and follow me i mean he i think he really means it right like mm-hmm. be aware yeah. that you might have to like actually carry your own instrument of torture along with it right,
1: you. right? Yeah. yeah and i think it's for me it's it's like the both end of i know that i i experience you know some level of risk in in the work that we do and at the same time you know that risk is very small compared to what the migrants organizing with me are facing, and so that's both hard and and also inspiring. So you know when we would have these marches and we'd be preparing, and you know migrants would come up to me and say, "Listen, I'm I'm kind of scared. Um, I don't I don't know how I'm feeling." Or or I've even had people say, "You know, I just simply can't show up in public. I want to support in some other way." It's hard. Like, you know, I know that it's not my job to shield people from that, of course, as much as possible. You know, making things public does bring its own layer of safety and protection. And and the fact of having white people, having U.S. citizens as part of this, again, is another layer of protection in some ways. But there's nothing that I can do in the end of the day to protect people. You know, I can't say to the folks who decide to show up at the wall for a protest that they that nothing bad will happen. We'll do everything we can and we'll invite the National Commission of, of Human Rights to be there and to document and all of those things. But at the end of the day, there's always risk, whether it's it's real physical risk or you know, the emotional piece, which is, again, another piece of trauma. One of the things your your question and your comment makes me think of is we've done a couple accompaniments of families who wanted to present at a port of entry to ask for asylum during the past year as part of one of our protests. So the beautiful thing is we're able to show up and support them and and actually process and walk with them as far as we can until they go in. Um, And they always are accompanied by, you know, someone from our team and, and a lawyer. But as much as you prepare someone for that experience of encountering authority and being rejected, you can't protect them from that moment. So I remember particularly a mom with kids who she's actually now in the U.S., thanks be to God, and, and is experiencing some level of safety there. But at that time, I remember she was so motivated and just like, I want to do this because we have this right. And we, we practiced and I pretended I was the CBP officer and she responded. And, and so we went through all of that, but then the actual experience itself. Was just nothing I could prepare her for, and she just cried and cried, and and I remember her daughter cried as well, and it was really hard because then for me, faithfulness was calling her the next day and seeing how she was doing and knowing that that there was nothing I could do to change that experience that she had. So in those moments, you know, sometimes I I question, was this worth it? They, you know, as much as I could tell someone. You know, the past year, every time we've seen people are getting rejected, denied. And so, you know, this is about, you know, showing that symbol that you have this right and you are demanding this right, even though we know their response will be no. So even though we know that response will be no, we believe that you have the right to do this. And so holding that tension of these painful experiences and and also accompanying people who have that desire to, to claim their rights. It's a really, it's a really tough, messy space to live in.
0: Wow. Wow. There's, there's the struggle of radical discipleship right there, isn't it? It's like the tension, the, the paradox, the, the places that are, you know, it's just, it's not black or white. (laughs) It's so great. Yeah. And Hard. Mm -hmm. We're constantly encountering the the cross and the resurrection at the same time. Huh. So there's a thousand Absolutely. other questions I want to ask you, but I know that we can't make this podcast episode <laughs> forever long, <laughs> 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 and yeah. you need to get back into the into the uh, into that's the right work <laughs> you have been yeah. to today. So let me just ask a couple more <laughs> questions. Uh, what, what are you learning about discipleship? What is discipleship for you?
1: I think for me right now, I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a disciple in, in the messy every day. I've had so much transition over the past five years that, that sometimes I notice in myself this tendency to want to, to run or change or move. <laughs> Or, you know, start to look at other job openings or, or whatever it might be. Sometimes that's real and, and it's about discernment, right? Um, but, but other times it just means there's something else going on here that I need to go a little bit deeper. And so there's there's the internal work in addition to sort of the, the external chaos. And so I think for me right now, discipleship is really being faithful to the internal work because the external need is, is very clear and it's very present. And so there's definitely a temptation to, to escape into that, to avoid dealing with sort of the secondary trauma and, and the frustration and the disappointments of this administration um, in the past seven months. So being faithful to that internal work, not, not turning away, taking those moments to go, go up the mountain, to, to find the seashore or whatever it might be, and knowing that that is important too, you know, when you see a line of, of hundred people, it's really easy to say, well, you know, I should just be working more hours, or I should just be, I don't need to sleep as much. I, you know, we can we could be organizing around the clock here, but I know that that's not, that that's not of God, and I know that that's not the, the real discipleship. That without that that groundedness, the rest is isn't possible, and and it doesn't doesn't flow from the same grounded place.
0: Mm -hmm. so in the midst of the action being really committed to contemplation and and your prayer life absolutely yeah
1: yes definitely
0: and having working for a a type of balance (laughs) although it's never Mm -hmm. completely balanced yeah at least
1: yeah working with that tension right being aware of that tension calling myself back when I know I'm kind of straying from those those spiritual needs and it's hard to living in this this sort of intercultural inter congregational life because the sisters I live with I love them and we have lots in common but there isn't the same awareness of of self-care of of stewarding you know the internal life when there is so much external need and so I have to find you know honor what it is that I need and and be okay with not being on the same page all the time with other people and who have different expectations which is hard there's there's a lot there there's a lot of ego in that there's a lot of fear of disappointing people mixed up in that but again it goes back to that that faithfulness to the the internal life and and being okay and accepting of myself so that I can extend that same uh, acceptance to others
0: Mm, that's a beautiful encouragement. Thank you so much. So sister Tracy, what is messy about all this? We've explored it some, but how, how would you like, what do you want to really highlight and underline when it comes to, to the messiness of radical discipleship on the border as a sister of providence? I think
1: one thing that's, that's a constant messiness for me is figuring out what my role is as a white woman from the U.S. living here in Mexico and ministering alongside migrants. That is a constant question for me. And I think with those of us who are white, it's a lifelong commitment to discern that it's something that won't go away because white supremacy is so prevalent and we have a lot of work to do. And so, you know, asking myself, you know, what's my motivation going into this conversation or this meeting? How, what's the work that I'm doing to centering, to center people of color, people um, whose stories are different from mine, the migrants who are doing this work. And sometimes that means using my platform to amplify those voices. Other times it means just simply getting out of the way. Sometimes it means extending invitations to people who won't be included excluded otherwise. It's never easy and I never do it perfectly, but it's it does. There are moments when I wonder, you know, am I am I the person that should be doing this? And I think something that's been helpful to me is, you know, constantly going back to my own story and recognizing, you know, what are the moments where I've experienced exclusion or felt I don't belong that really drive me and being really honest about that so that I can enter authentically into these spaces. Um, And I notice, you know, there are times when You know, I have the tendency to take control or have a tendency to to do things in a certain way where it's whether it's worshiping the written word or whether it's starting at a certain time. So, yeah, it's constantly checking myself on those things, learning about the white supremacy culture and and just trying to grow.
0: It's really hard. Yeah. And thank you for saying white supremacy in the way you are, because I think One of the things I've observed is that among my fellow white sisters, when I say like, oh, white supremacy, like we need to really pay attention to this danger that's impacting us all, there's for them... They go to like the extremists. Like, what are you talking about? The Ku Klux Klan aren't like burning crosses on our on our lawn. They're not like persecuting. How is white supremacy hurting us? We don't see it, but but in fact, it's sort of a doctrine that we as white people have been educated in, and it's harmed us, and it's cost us a lot to be told that we are white. And therefore we have a different level of superiority and, and it, and like have absorbed that slowly through our lifetime. So amen, sister, (laughs) that is some messy stuff. Mm -hmm. And it is really a hard hard. tension that, um, I feel like is like, and and I, and I, you know, I struggle with like, there's an urgency to the work, but at the same time, it feels like life work. Like this Mm -hmm. is going to be slow and hard. Mountain to yeah. climb here, and we got to work on this. Work on this together in community, and right. at the same time, like it should should have been over like a thousand years ago. <laughs> so,
1: like of course, right? Like, right. right yeah. We, and sometimes we... we'll have that moment when when I return to my, you know, senior in high school self, and sometimes you know I'll have I'll be reiterating that in my mm-hmm. life now. If I'm doing the work, then. Hopefully 15 years from now I'll look back and say, oh, that was kind of embarrassing that I did that. <laughs> but I've learned and I've grown and that's what it's about. Yeah. Not not judging ourselves. But and it's another layer to that privilege is being a sister in Mexico. Vowed religious in Mexico really are in most, in many cases, put on a pedestal, put in a different realm of holiness, which I don't believe in. But that's hard when I'm working with, you know, Catholics from, from Mexico or from Central or South American countries that, you know, defer to me because of that, because of my whiteness and because of this other layer of of privilege being about religious. And so it's really hard. I do what I can to try to, I don't want to say correct that, but address it and just name it and, and say, you know, I believe, you know, all of you are, have been called into holiness in this space as well. And and you're teaching me, and, and we're teaching each other. And it's not something that I, I believe that I can fix as one person within this kind of broader paradigm. But um, but we can talk about it. We can address it, and and create spaces where where there is more centralized power, in the hope that that will you know have an echo and a ripple effect.
0: Amen. Amen. So working in community, working for justice means also working for mutuality and constantly humbling ourselves and growing and learning. Oh, Thank God we're in the journey together and, and God gives us all yes. the ability to grow and transform and change, right?
1: That's right. Um, That's right. Thank God.
0: Thank you, Tracy, for coming on Messy Jesus Business. And before I let you go, could you please just share a little bit about how the listeners can support you and and
1: your work at Kino? Yeah, there's lots of ways. My first thing, if you haven't talked to Congress, your senators and your uh, congressional representative about restoring asylum, uh, find a way to do it. You know, you can really just show up at their office and talk to a staffer at any time. They just need to hear from more people and and more consistently that this is important the other piece we always take donations i you can find more about that at kino Initiative.org. we have a wish list on our page and uh, we can always use things like men's tennis shoes and jeans and backpack we go through those really quickly so if, for people who want to to send a physical donation or or order something online and send it and then just you know with your prayers, and with conversation, you know, sacred conversations with others where you can invite people, particularly people maybe you don't agree with, to just talk about and think about these these issues mm-hmm. it would be a really powerful way to, to grow this work.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show, giving your time,
1: and for all you do, know of our prayers and support and love. Thanks, Julia. It's really a joy, and it's fun to just have some time to talk with a friend as well. So I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas Sister Tracy and I discuss the importance of being persistent in our advocacy for justice and compassionate immigration reform, I am going to offer for you the parable of the persistent widow, which is found in the Gospel of Luke. I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if the Spirit wants you to pay special attention to a particular word or message today. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then he told them a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. He said, There was a judge in a certain town who neither feared God nor respected any human being. And a widow in that town used to come to him and say, Render a just decision for me against my adversary. For a long time, the judge was unwilling. But eventually he thought, While it is true that I neither fear God nor respect any human being, because this widow keeps bothering me, I shall deliver a just decision for her, lest she finally come and strike me. The Lord said, Pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? I tell you, He will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.